Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Sackman. With me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. And this is, as promised, an extra special, supersized, once-in-a-lifetime episode with two special guests. Not just one, two special guests. First, we have Suleiman Ijaz. Suleiman. Hi, Jeff. Great to have you. And also, a, a cult Tennis Abstract-related celebrity, Ado Salvati. Hi there, Ado. Uh, hi, Jeff. Thank you both for joining me. This is a special day, not just, I mean, mostly because of the podcast. This is episode 36 with, with special guests, but it is also my wedding party. I was already married, but we didn't really have a big celebration. So we are gathered in Helsinger, Denmark, for what I believe, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of research into this, but I think this is the greatest meeting of analytical tennis minds in Danish history. We left a couple of people out for continuity of government. Yeah. Exactly. In case something I, I, happens. I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're not off to a good start here. Um, so, so these guys were all, all um, nice enough. I don't know what, the, what you call it to, to join me for this special day. And, and somehow I carved out a couple hours to do a tennis podcast in the middle of wedding and family festivities. So everyone in the extended family is now aware that I have a tennis podcast. No one really knows what to think about that <laughs> uh, podcasts or tennis. Uh, so Jeff saw an opportunity to market to a lot of people at once by recording today and making a lot of people say, "Huh, maybe I'll listen to that." Exactly. Yeah, I I don't know if it'll work, but sure, it's it, maybe maybe it will. So one thing that. We have to talk about today since we have two of the biggest Roger Federer fans I know in the room. And Carl, would, how, where would you rate yourself on the Roger Federer fan scale, one to ten? Three. Three. What are, do, you, do you want to just leave now? <laughs> <laughs> and Suleiman, where would where would you put yourself on the one to ten scale? I mean, there are some really nutty people out there, so I'm probably <laughs> an eight. Okay, so you realize that all of those people are listening right now. You just, you just insulted <laughs> one quarter of our listenership. <laughs> So you're an eight and eight Yeah, pretty much. The same, I guess. Are you? Do you also endorse this insult to our listeners? Uh, not really. Okay. Just so you, for kindness. You're okay with the with the nuttiness. Okay, and I I don't know. I'm probably in the in the three area with Carl in the sense that you know he's great. I have a lot of RF merchandise. I'm I wouldn't stop what I'm doing to watch a Federer match. I would watch it later if it's a good one. Unless Ado's already charted it. So it makes him a, a tennis abstract cult celebrity. Because I, I should have given more biographical information. But those of you who don't know about Ado, he's one of the... Well, really, he and I are the, the, the biggest contributors to the match charting project. You're over 500 matches now? Yeah, five, six, almost 570. Wow. And, and you all should know that that's, those are not cheap matches. There are a few contributors who tend to skew towards the, the, the blowouts. Ado skews towards the the, the V-Launder matches that went five sets with like 67 shot rounds <laughs> on every point. So, so yeah, he's really earned the... the oh, we need to have the big ones, but then any help is... Yeah, we, right, so. we should say that, yeah. It, if, if you're listening and you're thinking, what is this match charting? I'd like to get on in on that. I have nothing to do today. <laughs> I'm not getting married. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Strangely enough, I haven't done any charting for a couple days. But yeah, check. you can Google match charting project or links from the homepage of Tennis Abstract. Or uh, I hope it's easy to find. And yeah, watch some of your favorite matches. Help add to our data set that is ever-growing. Um, we have tons of Federer content there. 
partly thanks to Ada, but partly thanks to the fact that everyone loves Roger Federer, especially people who contribute to the match charting project. Um, so now that we've established we are we are skewed in the direction of Federer fans, because I would say, Carl, you are three on the Federer scale. Is that higher than you are on any other individual player scale? Well, I'm obviously higher on the Dustin Brown scale. But among competitors in the GOAT debate we might be having, yes. Okay. So, so yeah, full disclosure, this is a very Federer-biased room. But the I, average score is a 5.5. It's well, hugely biased. Well, we don't know what the scores are for other contenders. I think that's the issue. I think we'd be around 1.5 for the other guys. I don't know. We really need to hash out more, not on this recording, uh, what what these what this scale means. Perhaps later this evening. <laughs> yeah, perhaps later this evening. Everyone else will be dancing. Every, but I mean, they'll be they'll be drunk. There's a lot of, a lot of drinking at Danish weddings. You should know. We can huddle with some excels in the corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we were just discussing before we started recording that we have probably three of the strongest Tennis Abstract power users in the Tennis Abstract user community. Uh, I'm not even sure whether I'm as much of a power user <laughs> as these guys are. Um, we're talking like ex- converting to Excel, dealing with date formats, but I can t- I can actually hear listeners in the future starting to fall asleep and just switch to their next podcast about Brett Kavanaugh or something. <laughs> I don't want you to do that. I like you too much for that. So uh, the first, uh, I want to start with the most important question in ten- tennis analytics right now. And the backstory here is thanks to thanks to Edo's good graces and, and connections, he and I are going to see the semifinals in Basel in a few weeks. Uh, hopefully, yeah. I mean, yeah. So the most important question in tennis analytics right now is what are the odds that Roger Federer will make it to the semifinals in Basel this year? What do you think, Suleiman? Strong field, but looking at the history, it's pretty high chances, right? When was the last time he missed a Basel semi? I can't well, he didn't play in 2016. Contingent from playing. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he, he, must, he must be playing. I mean, he's kind of already in like, retirement tour. <laughs> and not, not in the sense that he's retiring, but in the sense that I don't know. He's. We could res- retrospectively look at this as a retirement tour and believe it. I, think. I was looking into this a couple of years ago when I was thinking of going to Basel, and 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 the odds are pretty good. I don't remember the numbers, but I think the last of the ten times he's played, I think he's missed one semi or something. It's it's really insane. Did you actually calculate it? Well, I went on tennis abstract. <laughs> I just looked you just at, looked. Okay. I just looked at how he's done on the last. Uh, Eight or nine times he's played, and I, I can't remember. I struggle to remember a pre-semi loss at Basel. Yeah, there haven't there haven't been very many. And I I did a something on tennis abstract of I don't know maybe a year ago or something where I looked at the difficulty of the various impressive things that players have done at individual tournaments, mm-hmm. and you, it has to be you have to start with Nadal at Monte Carlo and Nadal at Barcelona and Nadal at Roland Garros. But uh, Federer at Basel was was pretty strong. It, I think it was even stronger than, than Wimbledon, even adjusting for the level of competition and the number mm. of matches and all that stuff. Uh, just checking, yeah, 14 semifinal appearance out of the whole career. The last time he missed was 2005. Wow. Did he yeah. 2005? That's a, that, I'm not sure. I think he did, but that's a, that's yeah. a pretty, a pretty strong sure. endorsement. Yeah, so yeah. it's a good investment. You should, you should definitely <laughs> And it, it's a sunk cost at this point. <laughs> no, it's 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 purchased. We're all all, all set to go. Um, is it 
equally valuable to you no matter how the match goes, whether he wins or loses, how long the match is? That's a good question. What do you think, Edo? I mean, well, would it make you happy being, to see? Yeah, I've never been to the Basel tournament, so just watching tennis live and knowing that he's there could be or should be. A, that sounds a little fangirly, knowing that he's there. <laughs> okay. uh. Well, I mean, you know, I, I always want him to win, but then uh, I know that I mean, he can't do that. So. You, you want to watch a good Federer match. Yeah. yeah, and a good Federer match is where he wins six love six one. Matches <laughs> <laughs> the other guy stupid with a sumptuous range of winners. Saves his energy for the next. Well, hasn't been happening. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, what, this that's is kind of the hope, right? Yeah, and this is the surface for it and the venue for it. If he if he yeah. has another six love six one semifinal in him, then this is this is the time and place. Yeah, right. Yeah. And with, and already the field is thinning a little bit. It's the time of year where we get more injuries. Um, David Goffin is out for the season now. He was going to play. So I, I saw the entry list update that when Goffin came out, that meant Ryan Harrison was in. And I don't really see him as much of a threat. Not so much. Bit of a curse of Labour Cup going, right? There's a couple of guys from the Labour Cup who's dropped out of tournaments because of injuries. Is there someone other than Goffin who has? I struggle to remember. I saw something online. I think Kevin Anderson had signed up for Chengdu the week after, and he didn't play, but I think that was just a... I don't know why he signed up for it in the first place. Maybe yeah, he made the quarters this week, so he's fine. Okay, so right. He's fine. Yeah, I, and that's an interesting question about Labor Cup, is how much it bites into the schedule. It's one thing to, to compete with St. Petersburg and Mets, but it's another thing to compete with a week or two afterward as well, because it's in the wrong time zone and, and all of that. I also get the sense that these guys play harder at the Labor Cup than at a regular, <laughs> yeah. at a regular <laughs> exhibition, right? At a regular exhibition, definitely. Federer gets into it and he takes it pretty seriously. Yeah. So, sorry. No, go ahead. The entry list so far for Basel yeah. would be the Potro in it, Zverev, Cilic, Tsitsipas, Cecchinato <laughs> for Italian <Yeah. laughs> fans of tennis. That's a Are they playing list. on clay this year? <laughs> yeah, Cecchinato yeah, would rely on the clay, I think. And yeah. and Djokovic has said he might uh, enter Vienna or Basel. I, he hasn't said anything specific about one or the other. But yeah. And I think it's just... I got to share Cecchinato... Um, uh, Wait, say it the Italian? What's the... Cecchinato. Cecchinato. And you need to move your hands. It's in... Yeah, it's, like, it's, with the one-handed backhand in, motion, right? Yeah, That's exactly... <laughs> I hear you do that a lot. I, I, I do. I, and now that I've started, I can't stop. And there's friends here that, yeah, are going to tell my wife about it. i got to tell you guys a, uh, a Cecchinato anecdote. Okay. On this uh, tennis warehouse forum, uh, there's a user called Checkmate, who on April 30th, 2018, put the following post. M. Cecchinato will beat Novak Djokovic at Roland Garros 2018. He predicted this on April 30th, 2018. What are all the other predictions he's ever made? <laughs> I don't know. But this is, this is a shocker. Because he nailed I remember the somebody... That, the odds that they play. Leave aside that the, the odds that he wins. He, he just, well, you know, he put it all in there. And that is one of the most um, impressive online predictions I've seen. Yeah, why would what would even prompt him to make that prediction in the first place? I'll send you the link. You can read his rationale. Okay. So, uh, 
and he's become a bit of a cult hero on this uh, on this tennis forum on Top Tennis. Check me. It's like two weeks before they actually played. No, no like a, month. a month and a half a month before month they played. And, and yeah, a couple weeks before the draw was even out. That's what the yeah, that's the remarkable thing. Like, I think the odds that the matchup would happen yeah. are lower than the odds of an upset. Yeah. Well, they met in the quarters, and the odds of the upset I think are lower than. One in four. No, but the, but I mean the odds of checking out of winning all those matches to get there to in the get first there, place, right. to make it happen. Drawn with Djokovic and reach Djokovic. Yeah, they were much more likely to meet by being drawn in the first round. Yes, which exactly. is very unlikely. Sorry for the digression. No, that's... once I heard his name, I had to share that. Yeah, yeah. Can I just briefly go back to the girly comment you made? Yeah. <laughs> because uh, I don't know why we had to gender it. You could have said, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know. I, I apologize you know, for yeah, that. I, I, I heard it coming out of my mouth. Of any sort, of course. Yeah, I, no, except for Ado, a little bit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Regardless of gender. I take it, but no, not 100%. Okay. No, I just want, uh, wanted to say that I was lucky enough to be at the 2017 Australian Open final, Federer um, Nadal, and at the semifinal as well with Lorinka. So any match after that, it's. It's at that level. I mean, it's like a cherry on top at this point. Yeah, exactly. and seeing it in, in Basel is is special. Yeah, I mean, because that's his no matter no matter what happens. Yeah, yeah, those definitely. were terrible matches. They took years off my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing about that. That's because you're an eight and not a three. That's why it helps be three. There's nothing good about a Federer match that goes five sets and has ups and downs well, and breaks up so well, if it wins, then. Sure, exposed, but during the match itself, yeah. it's torture. Yeah, it was a bit. It's not. Uh, it's in. It is in no way a pleasurable watching experience. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Being live, fair enough, but on television or like following. Twenty seventeen Australian Open, I'd say fourth round on was all gravy. I mean, yeah. he was coming back first time. Yeah, yeah, in yeah Six exactly. months. You should have been able to just enjoy that he yeah, was there in those matches. No but but you know it. <clears throat> The closer he gets to a major victory, the more it hurts when he loses, right? The <clears throat> third round, Australian Open 2015, you know, okay, whatever, he lost, set you know. It was set, yeah. but, but okay, he lost in the third round, big deal, right? But but the loss to Del Potro in the US Open final, 2009, oh, the, was, you know, uh, the loss to Safin in the Australian Open semifinal, 2005, those were cut I think more the 09 years of final, because, I mean, it was... Uh, so match, match points in the fourth set tiebreak, that yeah. thing was over. And then, oh yeah, true. That's well, you know, can't win them all. But true, true. I think I think it's a temperament thing too, because I think Carl, you and I have discussed this on the podcast a little bit. But I know I'm weird when it comes to being a fan. Like I, I'm I'm so rigorously in favor of the underdog that I will change my supporting preference midway through a match if someone starts running away with it. Like I, I've even watched matches on replay where I know who wins, <laughs> and I'll find myself cheering for the person who I know is going to lose. Yeah, it's yeah. guaranteed disappointment. I think that's because I was such a big, big Milwaukee Brewers fan in the mid-2000s. Like, now they're in the playoffs. As they we, as well. we were. Yeah, I mean, they beat the Cubs in that game. They, they, I don't think they should have won, really. I mean, they should have won. I mean, they wouldn't have been expected to win it. So, yeah, I mean, great time to be a Brewers fan. I'm not a Brewers fan anymore <laughs> because they're too but, but good. Jeff, your favorite tennis match of all time must be the Roland Garros final from 2004. Why is that? Wasn't it a blowout for the first two sets? And then epic comeback, down a break in the fifth, wins 8-6. Like Korea... Korea Gaudio. Gaudio. Right. Yeah, I should. Yeah, somebody must have, and it wasn't me. Uh, so that, It was hideous, right? Yeah, it was hideous, uh, but in terms of someone... In terms of comeback. Yeah, in yeah. terms of comeback. And was, it just, that, was it just that Korea, he gave up kind of? Yeah. Or did he just started and playing horribly? Just, no, he was, he was hurt for the match. He served for the match in the fifth set after... 
after winning the first two in a blowout and losing the third and fourth set, he served for the match and then just got broken and yeah. then broken again and lost. And it was yeah. actually kind of sad. Um, it is sad, yeah. But that, but you should check it out with yeah. your uh, with your Even knowing. <laughs> Even knowing what's going to happen now, yeah. I got the same feeling when I chart some matches that you know sometimes sometimes you know the result. Yeah. And so even if you know that a specific player is going to lose, then you, won't, you still won't would want him to win. So. Yeah, it's and you think maybe this time it'll turn out different. Yeah, exactly. But it, it I th- I feel that way reading books sometimes, <laughs> or even or watching movies or something. I, I I really want the underdog to. I mean, movies you can usually count on the underdog winning. But so everybody has fan fiction for books and movies. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's tennis fan fiction out there, right? Like, there's a great deal of tennis fan fiction. I've dipped into this world and it scares me a little bit. <laughs> um, Is it about matches going a different way or something very different? I it's a very different. Oh, like, okay. You know That's what, not what I'm talking. About. And do you all know what the term slash fiction means? Yep. No. What's that? Okay. So slash fiction is <laughs> like guitar. <laughs> there might be slash fiction about slash, but okay. no, that's not, not where it comes from. But it's, it's slash is uh, it's fan fiction that puts characters or people together in romantic relationships. So the slash is like between two people. Oh, so Brad slash Angelina or yeah. whatever. Roger and Mirka. Roger, yes, it, it's a, a lot of it's about the the fantasy of Roger and Mirka ending up together. But I think <laughs> there's lots of a lots of slash fiction between players. Um, often involving Federer, very often involving Nadal, I think. Uh, so tread in Federer into... and Nadal? <laughs> yes, plenty. Um, I, I think we're alienating more fans because I, I have to assume some of the people writing this stuff uh, are, are listening right now. Well, we haven't said anything bad about it. Well, Suleiman did <laughs> laugh instantly and pretty heartily at the, at the thought of Roger Rafa slash fiction. Wow, there's such a romance going. <laughs> yeah, I saw a play in New York in which some the the playwright was fantasizing about Rafa being okay. his boyfriend, and there was like a guy, an actor playing Rafa with the accent and everything. It was great. Wow. Oh wow. Okay. So it's made it onto New York stages. Okay. So yeah, there's but lots, I, there's I lots I of tennis fan the fiction. fiction around like. A, a point goes a different way in the 2009 U.S. Open final, and then everything changes. You must have imagined it, if not written it down. Well, the 2006 Rome final, 2005 Australian semi, 2008 Wimbledon final, break point in the fifth set, 2014 Wimbledon final, break point in the fifth set. There's plenty of those agonizing, oh, if only that point had gone differently. Yeah. That set point, the first set, 2011 French Open final. She asked Woody Allen to make a movie on <laughs> Is, is Woody Allen is, is Woody Allen okay at this point? Are we guilty by association if we endorse Woody Allen in any way? I feel like we are. Ronan Farrow, he can make the movie. Yeah, we can get Ronan Farrow to to make the movie. Will it be like a, a, a sort of a dry New York comedy? I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 difficult these days. Um, so who's the greatest player of all time? <laughs> yeah, that's, I find it hard to believe, Jeff, that you would you would be okay with this topic of discussion. Well, Does here's it. Fall really low on the totem pole of tennis discussions. No, it's it, shade and the the horse has been beaten mercilessly to death, and there's nothing left of this discussion. Yes and no. I've written about this a few times, partly because I have editors and they have desires. And <laughs> that sounds like fan fiction. Yeah. I, <laughs> oops, Dan, if you're listening, I'm very sorry. Anything I've just implied. Um, 
But it, I, I think the reason I dislike the subject so much, I mean, you're right, the, the horse has been beaten to death and then died, and then we kept beating it, and then it was buried, and then we beat the grave. But still... And we exhumed it. <laughs> we exhumed it and beaten it some more. I, uh, incidentally, I'm, my wedding party is at Kronborg Castle, which is the, the site of, of where Hamlet was set in the, the Shakespearean play, which I think also had some dead horse beating. Uh, lots, of, lots of violence. I think there were all, all sorts of things with graves. Um... I, coming back to the, the, the topic at hand, or at least our meta topic at hand, one of the big problems with the debate is that it's so often badly conducted. Like most people have very passionate opinions that are not based in fact, and often they'll. I mean, it's like partisan politics. Like it, it, you pick a team, and then you look for the evidence that supports your team, and you ignore the evidence that supports the other team. And I was thinking that, you know, since we do have, like I said, the greatest meeting of tennis minds in Danish history, <laughs> that this might be an opportunity to have this debate with people who, despite our acknowledged Federer fandom, won't fall into that trap. And the the number I wanted to throw out there is, I don't know if you've all read this article, I think Carl... Yes, and I've updated numbers. So I, I wrote this article just to give a little background before I let other people jump in. Um, there was maybe, no byline. You're giving something away here. Well, I, I tweet about them all the time. So the, the, there's no, and other people do too. The Economist Twitter account retweets their writers claiming yeah. articles. So I don't really know what level of anonymity there is anymore. Yeah. But the, the idea was that, yeah, we, Federer has the most slams. That's a big part of his case. And followed by Nadal and now followed by Djokovic, who's back in the conversation with his great second half of 2018. What I did was I came up with a metric using using ELO for each player's opponents to score each slam. So if a, if a player has an, an average level of opponents through the seven matches uh, of a slam he wins, then he gets one point, like one... One slam. If you're Vavrinka and you have to fight your way through multiple big four members, I think Vavrinka has three of the t- five toughest slams, uh, and his are worth like 1.5 or 1.4 or something. Awesome, right. And then some of the more recent slams that, that Federer and Nadal sort of cruised through are down around maybe 0.6 or 0.7. And add all this up, when I first did an article about this, I think it was about a year and a half ago. Uh, it, Federer had either a very slight edge on Nadal or Nadal had a very slight edge. It was within 0.1. It was basically a tie. And I, I, someone tweeted an article of yours from 2017, or 20, 2007 rather, about the fact that there is no such thing as a t- statistical tie. So it's not a statistical tie. It means something, this 0.1, but it's basically a tie. But since then, we've had a few more slams and players have added to their total. And we, I, I improved my ELO rating system. So the, the results now are Nadal has a clear lead. So he, his slams are worth something like 19 and change overall. Federer's slams are worth 17. And I think Djokovic's might be worth 16. He has 14, right? Yeah. So I think his are worth 16. He, on, a, on a rate basis, he's yeah. one of the highest of all time, and he's the highest of the guys in this conversation. So... So my question to the, the, the Knights of the Federer Roundtable then is, what do you, what do you make of that? I mean, if, if, we're, if we're putting our trust in, in analytics and numbers like this, does this mean it's a, a huge vote for Nadal? Is Nadal our presumptive greatest of all time? 
Well, in economics, there's a, there's the concept of a sensor regression, right? And and I think there's a slight problem here because the 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 majors that Federer was winning between 2004 and 2007, uh, we just simply have no way of knowing what he would have done to more difficult opponents. That, you know, that doesn't show up in the data. You can only beat whom you can beat, right? Uh, and he was by such a large distance the most dominant player on the planet that I think he's unfairly being uh, penalized because of the sheer coincidence of who was put in front of him. Don't you think that many of Rafa's slams have been at the French Open, obviously. Yeah. Do you think you could make the same argument about Rafa at the French Open? I mean, he's so dominant on clay that he could have beat more difficult opponents had they been available. But, but he did, because he is a pair to Djokovic, and he's, he's one generation younger than Federer. So he, he was facing those more difficult opponents. It's an asymmetric situation. When Federer was coming up, he, so, you know, there, are, there, are, there is an unusual uh, proliferation of all-time greats playing at the moment. You don't, you know, the, the number of majors won by the three best guys in tennis right now is, what is it? It's 20 plus 17 and 14. It's 51. So if you track that metric over time, I don't think you get anywhere close to 51. Well, you can't. There's no other three guys who are that, yeah. Right? And so the fact that Federer is five years older than these guys makes a huge difference. It's not, you know, you... So the the thing is, the minute you deviate from actual concrete numbers, it, it is a real challenge to, to, to claim victory and say, listen, we've, we've, we've got the right statistical interpretation. Uh, you yourself updated your analysis between six months and now and changed the answer. You know, uh, a, a, there are other ELO ratings out at the moment. I mean, for the guys at 538 to 1. So, so to, there's a really high bar to move away from, an abst- from a cold concrete number that's, that's 20 and 17 and 14. It is a really high bar to be able to say that we have improved upon this. You know, the concept of wins above replacement in baseball unambiguously improves over the concept of RBIs. Like, that's clear. But it took, you know, Bill James and a generation of statistical tweaking to get there. I'm totally open to this. I accept that Rafa has had to fight harder. But but it is just not clear to me that, you know, had Federer been the same age as these guys, you know, like, we're almost getting into the space of those counterfactuals. And it's really yeah. hard to figure out what would happen. And by the way, this is saying nothing about weeks at number one, which we, a GOAT debate can't just be about majors. No, definitely. And that's another point right. I've tried to make repeatedly is that when I, when I have been put in situations to write articles like this, people always respond as if my conclusion is a, an unambiguous statement of one player being the newly appointed GOAT. Right. And like, I'm never doing that. I, I, I could never spend enough time to write one piece that would have a conclusion on that broad of Correct. a topic. It's... You couldn't do it. So, so yeah. If we're if we're talking about slam to, slam victories, that's one thing. If we're talking about weeks number one. It's another but thing. You, but your question was: Does that does your analysis make Nadal the presumptive goat? I'm just yeah. responding yeah, yeah. to that question Understood. by saying, look, I I agree that you know on a per major basis, your numbers would suggest that that Nadal's majors are harder. I don't know how. I don't know if we're in a place where those can be interpreted to unambiguously say that Nadal's major performance is better. So that's comment number one. Comment number two is that this is saying nothing about rankings. I yep. think a 120-week edge in rankings is is not a problem that can be wished away. I think the lack of a year in championship is is a big, big hole. Uh, because, you know, indoor, hardcore, low bouncing, slow, whatever it is, he hasn't won there. He yep. has done it six times. You know, and the number of 
the number of guys with multiple majors who have failed to win the year-end championship is pretty small. So that's a bit of a hole. Um, you know, so my short answer is I the fact that this analysis has revealed a very interesting new direction you know if it doesn't keep me awake at night you know <laughs> wondering oh shit uh, and, you know, and we should point out that if anyone would be kept awake at night <laughs> <laughs> it would be the nines and tens it would be the nines and tens yeah that's true that they are being kept awake at night Edo what do you okay so yeah okay my take is I don't know <laughs> I don't know who that's a good place to start from yeah, I, I'm because, pretty much there too yeah because uh, I don't think it makes any sense to try to establish a single player who's, who's the GOAT um, we're consider- I mean in, in this conversation I think we're just considering the, the, the three current players Federer, Djokovic, Nadal right? but we, we're not comparing years or we're not talking about a past players that Mm-hmm. could be in the conversation as well. Like, I mean, people try to compare it. And my other point is that, can you really get to a conclusive um, point <laughs> when things are still ongoing? They're, these guys are still playing. So should, shouldn't we wait until they, they retire, they, they're no longer professional players, and then try to draw a line there with the numbers that they... they have a yeah, and that's that's a good point. I mean, it, it would be less fun because then we would have to yeah, we would have to press pause in this conversation for maybe four or five more yeah, years. But it might, and in the end, it might. Djokovic might run away with it, and I mean, if Djokovic takes over number one and keeps it for three years and wins six more slams. And he has a huge lead in Masters titles or something. Yeah. Then you know we could have this conversation again at my next wedding. Then, but Jeff, I should say something. Yeah, I think that you know you will not have a next wedding, <laughs> and Djokovic will not get there. Why do you, Why are you so sure? It's it's. So I would like to share a few numbers. I, I had this discussion with some people after he won Wimbledon at the U.S. Open, and the narrative seems to be: Look, Federer had Djokovic and Nadal, who were five years younger, and when he left his immediate peak, they were de- de- you know depriving him of majors, and if not, he would have continued winning. Blah blah blah. But Djokovic has no such all-time great who is five years younger than him nipping at his heels, and so he's going to run away with it. This seems to be the narrative, and I think. There are some cold hard numbers which would which would seem to negate that. So if you look at uh, Federer from age 23 to 31, and you look at all his major losses, un- so all of so, so only five of his 17 major losses in that period came to guys outside the top five, basically other than Djokovic and Nadal. So five out of 17. Since age 31 to 37, so that would be from the 2012 season until now. Uh, 12 of his 20 losses have come to guys who are not even close to being all-time greats. So that, that's a big shift, you see. And if you look at Djokovic, in that same 23 to 31 period, where Federer had 5 out of 17 losses to guys outside the top 5, Djokovic had 12 out of 22. So even in his in from 23 to 31, which is clearly going to be the most productive part of his career, 
the majority of his losses were coming to guys who weren't all-time greats. So this narrative that there are no all-time greats five years younger than him and he's just going to clean sweep everything from here, I just it's not, it doesn't hold water. I, I, I see your point. I, I wonder, though, that 23 to 31 takes us to today, right, for Djokovic? Correct. I, I did it. So and it's today, and we could look at Federer's next five years as some prediction of what will happen to... And the, and the percentage of losses to okay. the low guys increases. I think that the problem is is that it's so hard to quantify the effect of an injury and whatever it is that Djokovic has dealt with. I mean, it's not just physical, but maybe some mental stuff or whatever. Okay. And some of those losses that that case is built on are the ones uh, in his comeback. How many? Right? Two? At least a few. Well, Chechenato and... Sorry, sorry, Adam. <laughs> and, and Taro Daniel. And I think there's one or two yeah, more. There's two or three. But... but, but Taro but, Daniel was at a slam? No, not at a slam. I'm sorry. Sorry, I just want to clarify that, that the, the point I'm making is not that... It's not the 23 to 31 number, mm-hmm. right? What I'm saying is, in Federer's case, post-31, the frequency with which losses to lower-ranked players come increases. Okay. Right? That's the point. And, and so I'm using that to, to, to predict what will happen to Djokovic on the way forward. Okay. So whatever frequency, even if it's a very low frequency, between 31 and 37, naturally because of age, that just happens more and more. Yeah. It does, but, right? And it doesn't seem to be a case for Nadal. I haven't seen him losing to low-ranked players. Dustin Brown, remember in 2014? Yeah. And well, just, which is why Dustin Brown is the greatest of all time. <laughs> <laughs> it's Russell, yeah. it's uh, uh, Brown. Yeah, yeah, and there's uh, the bigger you know, surface variance with Rafa, which makes it tougher to evaluate Funini, him. Funini, 2015 US uh, Open. The, the even Even Soderling. Yeah. So, so guys, I just don't see this narrative. I mean, he is going to start losing to lower-ranked players more often. You don't need an all-time great five years younger to knock Djokovic off his perch from here for the next five years, just in my, from what I can see. Carl, do you th- I, 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 see the, I see the point in, about weakness to lower-ranked players. Do you think that who you're losing to... I mean, Elo would say who you're losing to matters a lot. If you're not losing that many matches... Do you think it matters that much who you're losing to? I mean, is 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 it that much worse for Nadal to lose to Rosol or or Dustin Brown than it would be for him to make the quarters and lose to whoever was number seven in the world at that at that time? Well, I I think the point being made is if you are vulnerable to a much wider range of players and you are vulnerable at many more stages in the seven matches of a Slam, and that seems to matter. I mean, it, it's it's like. If your probability of getting to that quarterfinal or semifinal stage goes down quite a bit, then your overall probability does does too. So I, I find that I, I still think I think people are people are counting out Djokovic too completely before Wimbledon and are counting him up too too completely since he won those two majors. It does feel like he's not gonna face incredibly tough competition in those last few rounds when he gets there. Yeah. And and also, we Djokovic has had some ebbs and, ebbs and flows in his career. We look at his his two best seasons. I think I'm really bad with remembering the actual years. Eleven and um, fifteen. 11 yeah. Right, they're not consecutive. He wasn't he wasn't the king yeah. of the world for 24 months. He was the king of the world for two separate 12 ish month periods, and one of the maybe the greatest player of all time for a one year period for either of those. I mean, that's a different conversation. But he he but did he that all four majors, yeah. which, which which is under, which to me is 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 a, is just a mind blowing achievement yeah. in this day and age. Yeah. So he's he's proven he can reach that level, lose that level, 
return to that level. And we've seen him lose that level more than he ever had in the past before Wimbledon this year. So is it possible that, that, that his trajectory will be different? That I mean, we look at Federer and Nadal in their different ways have been consistent at a level that maybe no one else ever has. Uh, and I'm thinking Nadal and Clay and Federer overall. But if Djokovic has it in him to come up with two, let's just even say one more 12 month period like that. Let's say he wins the next two slams and maybe peters out but wins two more later on. Um, like your point still holds. He might still be net, he might still be a lot weaker to lower ranked players who can pick him off but he has shown he can return to that highest level I mean do you think that's a that's a possible or a, a, let's say a likely outcome that he can come back to 2015 level play just absolutely not for that long absolutely he can if the if the if Djokovic was three majors behind Federer I would be a lot more uncomfortable uh, uh, than <laughs> then you would be losing sleep being I don't know if I, that's the nines and tens as well. Uh, you know, but six majors, guys, that's a, that's like six majors is is uh, Stefan Edberg. Edberg's career. Yeah, exactly. It's Becker's career. Yeah. Yeah. Right? He's just you know, you also have to look at getting to major finals and winning them. Yeah. Right? And Kevin Anderson is in the way and he's just a big guy. You gotta go walk around Kevin Anderson. Yeah. So I don't think Djokovic is is like if we're gonna say that your next wedding is gonna happen when Djokovic is challenging for gold, I think we should just. Oh, that's it's, good. It's good news. Yeah, it's good news for everybody. <laughs> so, uh, what about the the Edo? Yeah. Yeah. So now I just wanted to uh, pick your brain on, on the age factor. Yeah. Because what you just said, uh, Suleiman, you said Federer is six is six years senior, right? Than, than six years older. Good. That's older, right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Then um, Djokovic, and I think it's five years older than Nadal. Yeah. So that translates into, I was just checking a few numbers on uh, TA page and um, players page and um, if my calculations are right. Um, so uh, Federer, uh, Djokovic, or sorry, Federer played uh, almost 42% more matches than Djokovic and 28% more than Nadal did. So overall, or at this age, at their age? No, overall. Okay. Yeah. So, um, does that mean anything? As in, his odometer is much. It has much more miles on it. So, it must mean something in the sense that he's um, competing with people that are younger than him, that are play less, that are less tired, less. I mean, six years ago, I was much uh, more ready to, you know, plug and play than I would be now. So, even though if you're a tennis pro, so you, you <laughs> care about your body and stuff, then it, six I, is a big. Gap. I think I think Ido's making an excellent point. I have here a chart. Uh, <laughs> I'm sharing. It's really and, a table. But and, just, and just as just for background, Suleiman needs a shirt that says "I have a chart," or I, I, ha- I happen to have these numbers handy. This this chart was made using tennis abstract, and it is a, it is a it is a tabulation of the greatest open era careers after the age of thirty. Right. Guys, the four is the greatest number of majors that has been won by any player after the age of thirty, and that's Rod Laver, Roger Federer, Nadal is on three. This is in a career. 
we're saying that Djokovic is going to double that number almost and get to seven to overtake Federer. I mean, Rafa could. Rafa could. Well, I've said for, I think, a decade now that Rafa should just... To play the play the sparsest possible schedule and try to peak at Roland Garros for as many years as he can. And I think uh, well after my next wedding, he, <laughs> he he will still be winning a Roland Garros, and he he could get the career total that way. He's got to stop winning at some point, right? I mean, we can't have it both ways. We can't have Djokovic <laughs> being an Omega predator on the tour and Nadal still picking off Roland. Like they're gonna have to start canceling each other out. It's, we saw that at Wimbledon. You would think so. Yeah. Right, so we can't have we can't have it we can't have it both ways. No, I, I think one of the difficulties with this whole conversation and the, the type of predictions we're making is we're talking about these guys because they are one of a kind. It's kind of weird to say these three guys are one of a kind. They're each one of a kind in their own ways. Correct. And when we can talk all we want about aging patterns and that sort of thing, but they are one of a kind. I mean, Federer has. His level has come down in the last few years to some extent. Um, but even granting that, I don't think anyone expected five years ago he would when still be doing this are. now. Yeah, and I've been saying, I don't know, probably for five years, one of these days, Nadal is he's going to blow out his knee and it's going to be over. I mean, it's not going to be a fade. It's just going to be something's going to go wrong and we're not going to have any more Rafael Nadal on the tour. And that could happen, or he could win seven more French Open titles. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like both of those are legit possibilities, and there's only so much analysis we can do to forecast that stuff okay. because because they're one of a kind, and because we've now I've now said that we can't predict that. Let's stop trying. And I want I want to go back. To, yeah, Suleiman. Well, I just had one 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 other thought, which is to you know, this goes back to my having a problem with reducing the notion of a greatest tennis player to a single number, which is number of majors. Yeah. May I suggest another way of looking at it? How about performance at the five most prestigious tournaments in tennis? Both Djokovic and Federer are better than Nadal at four of the five. And Nadal is a lot better than them at one of the five. But surely being well-rounded is an important requirement for a good candidate. Now, why I'm saying this, because you raised the possibility that he could get the total by winning four more French Opens. But surely the discussion of who's the greatest, most versatile, most talented tennis player of all time should have the subtlety to, to take that into account. It Simply having one number to me is just way too reductive. It is. And something I've been meaning to bring up for a while now is you just expanded our focus from four tournaments to five. Carl, I'm curious what you think about this. The, the, a lot of these numbers point pretty unequivocally to Federer, the slam total or the weeks at number one and various other counting stats. What about the Masters titles? In there, Federer doesn't have an edge. These three guys are basically tied. They're within one or two Masters titles, right? I think Djokovic and Nadal are more than one ahead. Yeah, okay, they're more than one ahead. Okay, so, so they have the edge there. And with Masters titles, you have tournaments that every player consistently cares about. You have a, a, a bigger sample than just four tournaments a year. You still have a high level of competition. And you have a, a broader blend of surfaces except for grass but yeah Ex- except for grass yeah so that, that's why dustin brown is stuck at zero <laughs> so so what do you make of that carl why it seems like master titles is the sort of thing you say if you're on team rafa or team Djokovic to bolster your point and if you're not 
making an elaborate pro-Rafa or pro-Novak case, you don't really talk about it. But it seems super important. Yeah, when when Suleiman brought up weeks at number one, I was like, oh, and now he'll talk about Masters. Oh, no, wait, he won't. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot to say about Masters. (laughs) Wait, wait, where's the chart? (laughs) But there's no chart. It's just, I think the fact that that there are three clay masters and no grass masters is, is is a huge skew. I think the fact that until 2008, when Federer was 27, the finals of these puppies were five sets is a huge skew. I don't think those two things can be ignored. How uh, does it... I agree, the five-set five thing is a factor. Wouldn't that work in Federer's favor? Because, I mean, best of five finals should should make the favorite more of a favorite, and Federer was usually the favorite, I correct, would think, in the Masters correct. finals he played but, that. But the way you have to... Th- so, uh, you know... The way you have to think about it is you have these masters in like unforgiving, brutal back-to-back uh, week schedules, right? And so you have to assume that if uh, the, the, the amount of effort required to win one of these things is reduced, people will show up to more often or, or, or be willing to put in 100% and more often, you know? Uh, and, and Federer said this in the past. And now there's a whole debate going on about, you know, should the uh, majors shift to three sets? And I think Djokovic even came out and he said he's in favor of it, mm-hmm. right? And so, and obviously, the, the easier it becomes to win one of these, the more it favors the agglomeration of counting stats. Uh, so I think between that and, and, and the fact that there are zero grass masters, and that's a huge hit. If there were three grass, three clay, and three hard, you'd have to figure Federer would have more of a lead. Yeah, if there were three grass, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to think that the, the fact that we have a couple of, well, at least one indoor Masters. Is it just the one, or is Shanghai's outdoor? Right. Okay. It's Paris. 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 Well, yeah, Paris is the one. I was just thinking if there was more than one. But there, and there were indoor carpet not super long ago. Not too long. Federer's so Federer's won a couple yeah. of those. Yeah. Uh, titles, not not Masters. Okay. I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for him, it's basically Paris. I, I've always thought of. I mean, it's not as 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 extreme of a surface as grass, and it's not as extreme in Federer's favor as grass, but. It is something that Agreed. favors Federer more than the Agreed. other guys. But you're right. And, and this is another one of these unanswerable questions is if, if, if you're team fed, then, then you do start thinking things like we should have three grass masters <laughs> and, and working from that point. If you're team Rafa, you're pro masters because it, it's the one part of the schedule that favors him a little bit because there are multiple clay tournaments instead of just the one Roland Garros. One third instead of one quarter. That's true. Yeah. What what's the argument for how the other than the best of three, best of five, which I, I see your point, but Federer has had some really good years during the best of three period. Um, I think we like we end Federer's peak where it's convenient sometimes for our Agreed. Agreed. But Agreed. what Agreed. is the argument for how the Masters schedule favors Djokovic over Federer? Is it just the best of three, best of five? I, I don't think that it does favor Djokovic. I mean, I think Djokovic is a machine. I think there, there, were, there were stretches of times where Djokovic's mastery of masters just flat out exceeded Federer's. And there's just nothing you can do. You have to take your hat off and say, this guy's just better. I think what he just achieved at Cincinnati, what Djokovic just achieved at Cincinnati, incredible. Is, is incredible and yeah. something that Federer could have came close to and, if he'd and won fell Rome short. In 2006, if he'd won Rome in two, against mm-hmm. 2002. And he had some Monte Carlo, Carlo finals. Yeah, uh, well, a bunch against the but 2014 against uh, uh, Stan, where he, where he was up yeah, a set, you know, yeah, in the final. But a set and a break, maybe. Well, not a set and a break. It was no? just a set. But, but the, the point is <laughs> that, uh, uh, that you just have to take your hat off and say, you know, the guy did better. Uh, you know, 
as inputs into a into a discussion about the greatest of all time, I don't think you can put masters at at nearly the same level as majors, weeks at number one, or even the year end. You know, but but do I think that Djokovic has just flat out done better than Federer on on masters? Yes, he has. All right. So, what are your weights on those things? See, you can't get into a discussion about <laughs> mathematical weights because that's putting it, making it way too algorithmic, right? But you have to. No, but in your head, I'm, you, yeah, you, you have some heuristic for this. Uh, so uh, th- then, in that case, you just have to use. So that I've actually been a part of an online debate about this, and someone gave a very good answer to this. He said, "Look, the only non-arbitrary weightage you can then use is the one assigned by the ATP, right? You get two thousand points for winning a major. Yeah. You get you know fifteen hundred points for winning a year end, roughly." And you get a thousand for winning a masters, and so so there is again. I will uh, let me pull it up. There's a post made by someone else, um, uh, and I'll and I'll just pull up the numbers. But he took all of this into account and he tabulated the numbers, and you know, Federer just comes out ahead. Uh, 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 you know, what happens though if, if if you are just using counting stats, then you run the risk of valuing longevity over peak. And I mean, Federer obviously has a really high peak. Nadal has a tremendous peak. But at least by ELO, Djokovic has the highest peak of all. Um, Anyone ever. Not just out of these three guys. And that matters. It absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. So how how do you reconcile that with a purely counting stats-based metric? you got to take it into account. I mean, in my opinion... Djokovic will go down as the second greatest player of the Open Era after Federer. This is my like. I think he will overtake Nadal. He is an absolute monster. This guy has held all four majors. He's won every big tournament except the Olympics. He has weeks at number one. He's got majors. He's got he's got like rampant dominance for for short periods of time. I like and that phrase, rampant dominance. Rampant dominance right? <laughs> he's 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 you know. A lot of people will say he has head-to-head. I have severe problems with that with that metric. That's a discussion for a separate time. But I think this guy has an absolute rock-solid resume. Yeah. I think he just... There was a period of his time when he lost too many major finals. So from 2012 to 2014, he was 1-5 and five in major finals. And I think in the, in the grand scheme of things, that is probably going to be the difference between him overtaking Federer or not. But I think he goes down as the second, second best player of the open era after Federer. I think he's going to overtake Nadal. And here, I want to get... An opinion from all three of you on this. So I, I, I agree with you, and, and I think that um, if there ever does de- develop a bigger community of tennis stat heads who are looking into this stuff that parallels baseball, he's going to be like the Tim Raines of tennis, where Tim Raines was was this player who probably without sabermetrics would not be in the Hall of Fame, but. Every sabermetrician was a huge Tim Rain supporter. I would have said Mike Trout, just in terms of like potentially greatest of all time. Okay, yeah, that, that might be a better comparison. I just like Tim Raines more. Um, <laughs> but I mean, people have been wrote articles supporting Tim Raines as Hall of Fame, can, fame candidacy for a decade. Like you, you can't. You, you can't avoid this topic of conversation. And I think that if, if we had the same number of people doing this sort of work in tennis, you'd have a lot more arguments being made. Because Federer has this, partly because he came first, partly because of the slam total and the weeks at number one, he's, he's the default. I mean, if you're going to make an argument that someone else is the greatest of all time, you have to do your homework. You don't have to do your homework to say Federer's the best. The numbers are there. But there aren't a lot of people doing comprehensive work to, to show that someone else is number one. But I, there is a community of Novak fans who are on the case. <laughs> I, I know they're there, and I, I'm I, I'm tagged on a lot of their tweets. I know. Um, 
But let, let's take it as a given that that he's number two right now. Any Nadal fans out there, if we haven't alienated you in our first 35 episodes, I'm sorry. We're going whole hog here. You're out. <laughs> but if we're saying Djokovic is number two and he has this comeback right now, I want to have an opinion from the three of you. What what does Djokovic have to do to become your number one? To surpass Federer as the greatest of all time. Carl? He has to overtake Federer in the Jeff Sackman major titles count. Seriously? (laughs) Um, I think if he gets within a couple and overtakes him in weeks at number one, which I can see. How far down is he in weeks at number one? He's like 75 short or something. Oh, that's it. Okay. It's a year and a half at number one. No, I know it's a long time, but I mean, Simona Halep's been number one for almost that long. And, I mean, who the hell knows what's going on in the women's tour right now? I, by the way, I even though you just said it as a given, I'm not yet convinced that Djokovic is clearly number two or, yeah, or that he's clearly I, I overtaken would, Nadal. I, already. On that one. I think that, that is a, 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 um, a challenging statement to make. It is, yeah. And, and, and I don't mean to... to, to just ignore the, the you, solid the case for, for the sake of arguments. Yeah, yeah. And for the sake of argument, let's, let's and alienation. Yeah. And alienation. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've picked, I, I've picked Gail Malfi's to win a lot of slams. I've picked Victoria <laughs> Golubich to win some slams. So I think anything I say should just be prefaced for the sake of argument. Um, so okay, so, so the weeks at number one is, is would you say that's the biggest factor for you? He, he has to win more major titles to do it as well, right? Because he Which could he could get the weeks. You'd think, although he could get to weeks at number one without it, just by winning masters and going deep in majors. Ado, yeah, what do you I think he needs to do? Agree, slams. It's do you, is it first and foremost? Is it the slam count? Yeah, but I could. I mean, I might say this, and uh, this come out as a shocking revelation, but in a. This was I wanted to ask you guys. Um, in a Space Jam type of scenario, single player facing aliens from a, a single alien from a, from some tennis playing other yeah, alternate universe. Like, yeah, 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 and uh, uh, planet Earth saving kind of situation. I would pick. I would uh, pick. Yeah, choose pick Djokovic to represent her. Like peak Djokovic or now right. Djokovic or no peak peak as in what's the, with, what's the surface? Yeah, is it is it like the Battle of the Surfaces court with half grass no, and half I clay? Don't know. Well, maybe let's say neutral or let's say hard, which is dumb. but fast or slow. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, what's what's the CPI you're thinking? <laughs> no, it makes a huge uh, difference. It does make a huge yeah, difference. Yeah. Absolutely. If you cut Federer, Djokovic is hard. Well, actually, here's, no, no, here's a better way to ask it: right. the humanity gets to choose the surface and the player. Okay. Then you probably okay. choose Clay and so, Rafa, no, so right? Atlanta and John Isner. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I'm joking about that. Like, it, if if you're if you're going to have, it, let let's say there's some unknown player who arrives from an yes, alternate, we don't, we don't nothing about that. alternate universe or northern Norway or something. I don't know. Comes from somewhere. We don't. We only know that they are great. Okay. We have to pick the surface. For, for our best chance at a win let's say we don't know how good they are I mean they could be an ELO of 2300 they could be an ELO of 2900 and that's be favored against Djokovic or Nadal if if we don't know who this great player is Isner has a 50-50 shot of winning oh. in Atlanta <laughs> <laughs> sorry we sidetracked you maybe, maybe, maybe it should be that humanity chooses the player and then the aliens choose the surface then it's probably Djokovic uh, 
strong <laughs> everywhere. I would say Nadal would play a curse, but then. Uh, but if the aliens choose hardcore. Yeah, overall, overall, I would say Djokovic. I'm, it's a good I, pick. I come from a from a You're a Federer super eight. Federer fan, but then yeah, I I um, I'm not that kind of fan that doesn't like um, other players' style or how they compete. I love seeing Djokovic play, of course, because I love the way he played tennis as much as I love seeing Federer. So I would. Um, so that's my. Non-statistical, analytical take on the, on the subject. Yeah, uh, and as a Federer fan, you wouldn't have years taken off your life during the match <laughs> that might end your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it shows. Uh, it shows. <laughs> so for, for, um, closing the loop, Suleiman, if Djokovic is our number two right now, what does he need to do to take over number one? Well, I think there's one side of this discussion that we haven't touched on. Uh, there's probably seven, but what were what are you? Fair thinking? enough. But what I'm what I'm just thinking of is. You know, Federer is a player who has embodied aesthetics, grace, and beauty in a way that Djokovic and Nadal simply haven't. Correct. The man inspires essays, poetry. He inspires, yeah, you know, a religious fan following. I don't think that can be written off. So, you know, if you're asking me from a purely counting perspective, what does Djokovic need to do to be better than Federer? Well, gee, get close on majors, get close on weeks at number one, and, you know, then the superior masters and the fact the that the level of competition, majors, maybe. The level of competition, sure, although I have severe issues with that because if, if God himself came and played tennis, he would win everything and then he would say the field sucked. So yeah, yeah. I have an issue with that. Yeah. But maybe so that's what happened maybe 2004 that's what happened to 2004. But he would have to do something more than that to offset the fact that Federer has reinvented modern tennis. He's reinvented the way it's followed. He himself has raised the level of Djokovic and Nadal. He has enabled and created Djokovic and Nadal and thereby made tennis a more relevant sport. Every Djokovic major title should be added to Federer's count. <laughs> so basically you're saying we, we need minimum 50 weeks at number one, four slams, and peace in the Middle East? <laughs> and peace in the Middle East. But, but I, I just, I think that there has to be Deciding who's the greatest player of all time must be a holistic discussion. It can't yeah. be like number of majors. It can't. It's, you've got to take all of that into account. So I think Djokovic would have to to be meaningfully better at the counting stats to to compensate for some of the some of the softer stuff that Federer has going for him. Yeah, but Ada. I'm really biased. <laughs> you are a little, you are a little yeah. bit biased, Ada. Yeah. Okay, I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm the the. Djokovic's ability to bend is mind-boggling. <laughs> and I don't think Federer does. Yeah. And, my and his dancing and impersonation. Yeah. Other, yeah. Well, he stopped doing it. And the other thing is, um, Solomon, do you think um, Foster Wallace would write a piece on Djokovic if he was still alive? This was my point that he's inspired one of the greatest pieces of sports writing, and there's so, a bunch of work on Grantland, and you know, like he inspires a lot of good literature. I yeah. And Michael so, Joyce yeah. inspired a pretty good essay too. We're not talking about him. <laughs> Next episode. <laughs> Next episode is Michael Joyce a, a goat contender? Um, and then I, uh, oh, Michael Joyce. Michael yeah, Joyce. Yeah, Michael Jordan. Yeah. This is a this is a tennis podcast. We're not talking about Michael Jordan. Come well, on. Did, but that was more of a. <laughs> Say on, on the way that's more of a professional life. That's true, yeah. So it's not a a direct comparison. Um, You make a good point, Suleiman. I do think, though, that we have to draw the line somewhere. And if 
if we're going to have the, we can have two separate debates again, and I think we are. That's part of the problem. Part of the reason that I've been reluctant to really dive into this topic on the podcast is because yeah, I was surprised it, you. <laughs> <laughs> because Major like, like I said before, there, there's there's so much beating of dead horses. There's so much partisan style bickering going on in this debate, and a lot of it but is I hope not on this podcast. Not, not here, definitely oh, right. not. This has been great. This is because we're all on the same party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because because we agree with each other, um, but you're. Part of the reason that, that Federer has become the default fave is some of the things you're talking about. Like, he, he does have a cultural cachet that goes beyond anything Nadal or Djokovic have, has accomplished. And for some fans, nothing will overtake that. I mean, his career resume is so good. He's sort of like the Babe Ruth of, of tennis. Like, you can make arguments against Babe Ruth, but I mean... Barry Bonds is probably better than Babe Ruth. That's, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. But it's a cachet thing. If you, if you put Babe Ruth's cultural cachet and importance to the sport against Barry Bonds, then Babe Ruth is the clear winner. I mean, you can, you can decide whether on-base percentage matters enough to outweigh that, but I feel like that's a different conversation. So it... it so you're defining... You're, you're restricting the scope of this discussion to be the, the greatest tennis resume. And Basically, not, I mean, and I, not a broader discussion about the greatest uh, uh, exponent of the sport. Sure, yeah, and I, that's enough. a good way to put fair it. Enough. And and part of okay. the reason why is I, I'm not terribly interested in questions that can't be answered. That can't be fair I mean, so, so well, it, that, that can't be quantified. Although everybody would know that Federer's cultural uh, 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 cachet is greater. Sure. Without being able to quantify it, it's clear that it's better. But in your restricted discussion, uh, look, I think Djokovic has the tiebreakers. So if he can, you know, come close to Federer on majors, if it's like if he's off by one, you know, and he's close on 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 weeks at number one, and you know, then the the Masters and some of his 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 other achievements, uh, you know, could take him over, sure. So uh, since we pointed out early in this this section of the podcast that we're, we were stipulating for the last fifteen minutes or so that Djokovic is our number two, but you quickly pointed out, Carl, that was. I should have specified that more. I mean, Nadal is definitely in the conversation as number two, and you can make an argument for him at number one. I don't think anyone at this table would make that argument with a straight face, but it can be done, and people often do so while while tweeting me. Um, so, uh, second round, Carl, what does... Assuming that Djokovic doesn't do these things that we're discussing, it would probably be impossible logically anyway, but what does Nadal have to do... Uh, over the the rest of his career to, to become number one in your mind? Because I think what you were saying earlier, Suleiman, and maybe we all were jumping in on this, is it, it doesn't seem right that he could he could reach the, the, the lead in the slam column just by winning a bunch more French Opens. Like, that would raise more questions than it would answer, I think. So if it's not that, maybe it is that, and you can tell me, but if, if it's not that, what does Nadal need to do to be number one? Yeah, I think he'll still have a case even if he just does it at the French Open. And to say, oh, well, that's just one tournament. Well, that means he only has one chance a year to do it, and he still racked up that many, which is incredible, especially considering Federer and Djokovic and their best on clay are probably among the greatest clay players in, mm-hmm. in the open era. Um, and Dominic team is climbing. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, if Nadal hadn't been around, team might have a couple. Yeah. Now yeah, and he's young. Um, 
I think if he wins an Australian Open, I think he really feels burned by not getting that second Australian yeah. Open. That really would burnish his resume. He was lucky to get the first. Yeah. <laughs> but you could say he was unlucky not to get some of the ones he didn't, yeah. um, including that Vavrinka match. So I... <laughs> he, could, he could say so. I mean, look, he lost the first set to team six love in the U.S. Open, and that didn't mean he lost the match. So, First set in a best of five doesn't always mean so much. I'm going to say this just because Suleiman said he was going to defer this to another another podcast, and I, I got to hear his rant on this. Nadal would also burnish his resume here if he extended his lead in the head-to-head. Go. <laughs> <laughs> That's an absurd discussion. <laughs> I mean, the, the head-to-head essentially penalizes Federer for being a better player than Nadal. I, I've made this Speak case. I've written a long post about it. We can. You know, is that one of the ones you translated, Edo? Um, about the, uh, I only did one piece. Okay, but the argument basically is Federer has gotten to matches. I mean, the the meetings have come about to skew in Nadal's favor because Federer gets there on clay and Nadal doesn't get there on other it's surfaces. It's not clay, it's more slow versus fast. Okay. Yeah, that's right. You looked at court speed. Do you make this case more generally about head-to-heads then? Like, are they all absurd or is this one no, particularly skewed? No, this one skewed? is completely egregious. But the Federer, Djokovic... But see, there's another skew, which is age, right? It's, so so all of these numbers, you know, they, they it's it's easy and simplistic to say, ah, look, head-to-head lead. But, but it's a completely censored regression. There's like all kinds of... If we use head-to-head as, as, as a metric that encapsulates greatness, it is a seriously flawed metric, which is systematically favoring one player over the other. So it's not, it's not a relevant input into a head-to-head. Well, I would go even further. Like, I, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying about that, but even if none of that is right, I still don't think it's terribly relevant because even it... it, 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 it posits this model of a, of a ranking ladder where you can't be above someone who can beat you. And every player has someone who can beat them, at least for a little while. There was a stretch where Djokovic lost a couple matches to Andy Murray. Murray was number one, but I don't think any serious person was saying Murray was better than Djokovic at that point. And I think you got some, some angry tweets to that effect when you said otherwise. Yeah, I got a lot of angry <laughs> tweets. But I, I mean... We all get angry tweets. That's what Twitter is for. I have a small contribution to make here. Uh, some time ago, to, to, to argue against this absurd Federer and Nadal head-to-head, I compiled a list of all the tournaments that they both entered together mm-hmm. and saw who went further. Yeah. Which is really what matters. Yeah. yeah. So if you were to calculate... So the head-to-head anyway should be replaced by something called a tournament head-to-head. Right? Which is you just look at yeah, the, no, the, sure. the overlap in the set of tournaments they entered, and then it's win-lose tie, right? And Federer has the tournament head-to-head against Nadal. Uh, at least it was a few tournaments ago when I calculated. I haven't looked at the latest numbers, right? So if you're going to use any head-to-head, use that. Yeah. And that, by the way, so when you look at tournaments that they entered together, there's two parts to it. There's, there's the tournaments where they met and the tournaments that they didn't meet, Right? And, and it's interesting because in the tournaments that they met, obviously Nadal went further 23 out of 38 times, definitionally because he beat Federer. In the tournaments that they did not meet, correcting for competition, correcting for time, correcting for surface, because the, 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 the looking at the common tournaments corrects all of those things for you. Federer is overcoming that eight uh, loss deficit and is even further ahead. 
right against the pure field tennis is not a head to head sport tennis yeah. is a, you have to be you have to win titles against the field in majors that they have entered together federer has won more in tournaments that they have entered together federer has won more and in addition to winning more he has gone gone further more often so if you're going to use any head to head you should use the tournament head to head yeah so so sorry i there's my sorry call you you <laughs> i just no, don't be sorry. I said I want your... Thank yeah, you. he knew exactly what he was going to get. I mean, I think I think that metric might be better served by a different name. I mean, I understand... Yeah, I was just thinking, to, let's brainstorm. Yeah, because it, it, I, agree, I agree for and for different reasons that head-to-head is, is way overrated. It's completely whack. Yeah, and it, and in a case like this, like the, the circumstances of the meetings mean that it, it's not that reliable. But for most players, you're looking at a maximum of 10. I mean, how, there aren't that many head-to-heads that go beyond 10 matches. And Correct. I did something, I think, last year during Wimbledon for The Economist where I looked at the, the predictive power of head-to-heads mm-hmm. combined with ELO. And, like, you've got to get to 50 head-to-heads to be as meaningful as a simple ELO pre- prediction. I mean, you can get a little bit of value out of the head-to-head, mm. but, but not much. I wonder what value you could get from tournament head-to-head. Because there are going to be... You know, meaningful numbers of those things because guys enter the same tournaments. Yeah, I mean, I, and I would think you would. Yeah, you just the the fact that the sample's bigger is is exactly. going to give you more. Exactly. I mean, it might since it does consider a, that much more data, it might end up having more overlap with what Elo's already telling you. Whereas head to heads often are diverging wildly. But to close the circle, the question on the table, I don't know whose turn it was, was about what Nadal has to do. Uh, I don't uh, know. No, I. I uh, what do you think, Edo? I was. I mean, can you imagine any scenario where in five years you are looking at tennis abstract and thinking, you know what? I think Nadal is better than had a better career than Roger Federer did. It got hacked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's possible. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Even Djokovic though. So. It's it's possible. So you yeah. so you remain. It's you a rem- scenario I wouldn't like. Much. <laughs> More Djokovic than Nadal, but. Uh, it could happen, yeah. Would it be good enough for you if Nadal won four more French Opens? Do you always have a feeling that Nadal is, is a clay quarter that managed to win other slam, I mean, slams and other surfaces? So, um, but it, I think he's a, he's a an, uh, overall good player any, on any surface. So, even if he is uh, slam count is biased towards French Open, then I mean, well, he's still he's still number one at this point for one thing. Yeah, I mean exactly. he's he's the, he's the one adding to his weeks at number one tally right now. Yeah, how, does anybody know how far back he is in weeks at number one? Before he started getting uh, to number one in this seventeen two thousand seventeen eighteen era, he was up to one hundred and forty, and you got to figure he's been number one now for what. Uh, 50 or something weeks. So he must be okay. he must be closing in on 180, 190. Yeah. Okay. So how many does... This he's, he's about 110 back. He's got two, okay. two more years to catch. That's a big yeah, that, That's a lot to ask. So I, I, you know, I made a comment earlier that restricting ourselves to the set of counting stats, we're not counting now the... As per your your, yeah. we're not, we're not counting the cultural stuff, right? And the and the aestheticism and the poetry and the essays. <laughs> Are you sure that's all? Can you, <laughs> there must be other factors. Exactly. That, other factors. Well, earnings, popularity, brand, whatever. Didn't didn't Djokovic pass yeah. in career prize money though? I'm talking about endorsements. Okay. Which is meaningful. But anyway, 
the point is, if we restrict ourselves to who has a better tennis career, my comment was that Djokovic probably has the tiebreaker against Federer because he held four majors and because he's got such a complete resume and because he has periods of extremely high dominance. Nadal lacks all of those. He neither has periods of, of extended dominance. Uh, exactly. no, but, 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 but see, it's not, but tennis is more than just clay. So my point is, with between Federer and Nadal, I would give the tiebreakers to Federer. Because his career is more well-rounded than Nadal's. Yeah. In a way that Djokovic's is probably more well-rounded than Federer's. Right? So for Nadal to... And, and so for Djokovic, I said, if he gets to within a major or two of Federer and to within a few weeks for number one, you kind of have to say, look, you got to give it to him. But with Nadal, he would actually have to go further. Because, you know, he has... He's better at the French. He has a winning record in French Open Finals. But he's worse at all the next four tournaments. And he's actually got losing records in finals of all of those next four tournaments, the three other majors in the year and championship, right? So even if he gets to the same number of majors and the same number of weeks at number one, the tiebreaker probably belongs to Federer. Yeah, and I've been saying, as the extreme example, if he gets to the slam total with only French Open titles, but that's a good point. Even if he doesn't, even if he does win the Australian Open, which would, would bolster his case, people are still going to look back at this in a generation and say, wow, that's really clay heavy. Just for the sake of counting, does he have seven? How many French Opens does he have? Who? who Nadal? Yeah. 11. Eleven. So he has six. Six of all others. It's, it's which 11. is an incredible career. Which is an incredible <laughs> career. I mean, let's be Stefan Edberg. He's got <laughs> Stefan Edberg's career off clay. The man is a beast. Yeah. But the, the, the standard that we're holding ourselves to in this particular discussion is not Edberg. It's, yeah. We're talking about the greatest players of the Open Era. So you, so you gotta, you know, he has losing records at the finals of all the other. Players. I agree. It is worth remembering that ten years ago, still eight years ago, Sampras was considered by many the greatest and never reached a final at the French Open. Yeah, same. That's true, but I mean, like you say, the standard has changed. I mean, I think the fact that Federer and Djokovic both have the career slams and yeah yeah no I know but I mean like Sampras is no longer the standard I, I, I see your point that it wasn't that long ago that he was and, and you could make the argument without this with having one giant gap in your resume but there's there's no more there's no more contenders with big gaps right so but I'm just saying we're, gaps, we're, we're like, like right but it's not that level of a of, I don't right. think it's, it's not the same level of a gap as, as, as Sampras on clay yeah. yeah or ever winning an important match on clay in your entire career that's an ex- that's a stretch but only slightly well he won he won Rome but it's not I don't know what you know the alien scenario we were talking about before <laughs> I think that same that same civilization was involved in getting Sampras that Rome title were you there could you explain uh, in Rome or yeah. in the... <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't there. No, no. Now, I wanted to ask this. It's a related question. Yeah. Um, do you think... Okay, taking for granted that Federer is not going to play French Open anymore. Yeah. Which he's, he's sort of he flirting with the idea of... Like, yeah, I think well, we, should, for we should assume he's not. Yeah. He might once on a retirement tour. But yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but it... Yeah, that guy on, on your forum has already predicted Chechenado defeats Federer <laughs> 2021 <laughs> second round. So, the, uh, so assuming that he's not going to play, and if he were, he would most... He's not going to do much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think it's um, more likely that uh, Djokovic is going to win another French Open or Nadal is going to win another Australian Open? 
which make it for for having two um, slams at, at yeah that's a each slam and two wins at, at each slam. That's a tough one. I, I mean, Nadal is consistently threatening at the Australian Open. Yeah. I mean, not every year, but he's been close. Um, a lot of it comes down to health. I mean, if he had been healthy this year, then I mean, oh, who knows? he might have it already. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's always the X factor with Nadal. If you're even making the prediction at this point, we, he, he's out right now. He is injured. Yeah. He's missing Shanghai. I think he's scheduled to come back for Bercy. Yeah. Uh, so th- I think there's a question mark of whether we, pl- we see him again this year at all. And if we don't, then, I mean, Australia will be next year. Is the discussion now here, how likely is it that he achieves the scenario we described? No, no, yeah. no. no, no. Well, no it, my question is, what's um, most likely? Between yeah, what you... Uh, Djokovic winning another French Open and Nadal winning another Australian Open. That makes two wins at every... Slam. For either of them, yeah, yeah, and not the, for Federer, the double career slam, single, right? Yeah, what do you, win. what do you think, Carl? Uh, That's yeah. Uh, I would say Djokovic. I think there's no. Every time Nadal has an injury, like he did at the U.S. Open or the Australian Open this year, it feels like the probability of the scenario in which he stops trying to compete at yeah. some or all of the non-clay slams increases, whereas. Djokovic has been in every French Open and contending basically in every French Open. On the other hand, it's possible that Nadal is in every French Open that Djokovic plays for the rest of his career, and that that might make it tough. Yeah, I mean, your question becomes. So, I mean, this is. I'm hearing this in my head, and it's becoming more stupid as I think about it. But as soon as one of these guys retires or has a sharp fade, then. They're out of the way for the oh, other yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, once one of them retires, he's not going to be able to get the, the slam because he's retired. But he also makes it a lot easier for the other player to achieve yeah, the, the double slam. But Djokovic managed to win uh, in Paris, to beat Nadal in Paris. So He did. I mean, and that's something we've we only glanced... Even though he didn't win that, that, that tournament, but then... And that's yeah. something we've only glancedly talked about, that yeah. like, Federer is great on clay... One of the, maybe one of the best ever, but he's pretty far out of that discussion. I think Djokovic might be the second best player on clay mm. of all time. Better but, than Borg? That's a really it's hard a, case. It's such yeah, a tough case. I mean, we're, we're I can see Sweden out the window, so I feel like we have to give <laughs> Borg some serious consideration. Yes. Yes. Uh, or else people are going to start boarding the ferries and very politely trying to stop this podcast. Um, I think that's a really, really hard case to me. Standing on the sideline in this conference room, not saying anything. Like Borg is Labor <laughs> Cup coach. How many finals does Djokovic have? Uh, four? No. Wait, I forgot. Yeah. He, he lost to Wawrinka in a French he final. Four and he lost one. to uh, Nadal in uh, Two, 12, 14. Uh, he lost to him in the semi in 13. How do you take that career and stack it up against Borg, who once had three semi-final victories at the French Open where he lost a combined eight games in three semi-finals. Yeah, that's, the, the eras are so different. And like yeah, exactly. and, and like you're saying about God coming down and making the field look weak. It, and that was Borg. That, well, it's, it's Borg, but it's also Nadal. That's the thing. Like, I, it's really hard to, to use losses yeah. against Nadal against someone in their case for being... 
No, but we have to use them for him quite dramatically, I think. Because we have to be, we're making the case that Djokovic would have won those French Opens without Nadal to say that he was better than Borg. Yeah, that's true. But even, okay, yeah. how many times has Djokovic lost to uh, Nadal at the French? Four? Uh, Four? Two in final. But I give you exhibit A. He's in, in his best career year, he was taken down by a 31-year-old, you know, like Wawrinka, who had a good day. So that completely torpedoes the argument that he would have gone around mopping up all the, the ones where he, where he beat Nadal. That's true. I mean, you it's, know, it's, it's a factor. So Favrinka just makes a lot of analysis complicated if we're, if we're not doing the math. He does, Even yeah. Even though he, when he lost to Favrinka, he played a uh, five-setter uh, against Mare that went on two days. So I just charted this. <laughs> Should have beaten Murray faster. Yeah, I know. But then uh, I went to you know, fifth set and it was uh, played on two so he played on, on Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday. So might have uh, you know. Okay. Yeah, anyway. if you wanna be, if you wanna be called the second best French Open player of all time, you've got to take care of I didn't say French Open, I said clay. Ah, sorry. And that's sorry, a big sorry, difference. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So okay. so yeah. You, Although Borg was awesome on clay off the French Open too, it wasn't just. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and I think it, it it's I almost give up with error comparisons that go yeah. back that far. I mean, yeah, it, it's and it's really the, hard. It, it, more people have done. Is it? This is a funny story that um, there's a. I was going to make a comparison to baseball and and Babe Ruth because it, it's sort of a, a generic thing that comes up in a lot of discussions of. Competitive, competitiveness levels over time. An article by not by me, but in the Economist about changes in in levels of competition mentioned that uh, if Babe Ruth were playing today, he'd he'd be a major league level player, but he'd be mediocre or like maybe a little bit of a star. But we can't really you, we, do you can't do it right. right because it would have been impossible to hit five sixty. <laughs> In, in batting average back in Babe Ruth's time like you'd have to bat 560 back then to be to have that translate to being a star and the fact that Borg is in the conversation for us at all right now is because he basically did the equivalent of batting 560 on clay I mean he right. was he was off the charts good and if you adjust that for now like I mean, we don't have a really bulletproof algorithm for this, but I'm guessing that the best adjustment we can come up with is going to say that being outlandishly great in the late 1970s, 1970s translates to being probably a solid top five player nowadays. You're but using, you don't. But you just don't know. You're using the argument of the evolution of the hundred meter dash record, right? That the that the the hundred meter gold medal winner in the 1900 Olympics was basically a high school sprinter today. Well, that's evidence, but that's not the argument. Um, no, but the argument is that... So, sorry, let me phrase it as a question. If there was a sprinter who was winning the 100-meter dash by two seconds in 1900, even though he would only translate to being a high school sprinter today, the fact that he was that far ahead of, of you know a competitive running everybody runs right so the fact that he was the fastest runner on the planet a century ago that should get him some credit right even though like you gotta correct for what the rest of the world was doing even though he may only be a high school runner today he's clearly not the greatest fastest runner of all time but he has the biggest delta over the rest of the world of all time and that's what accounts for something yeah, and it, 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 what I think it means is, is what, you've, what you've said about not being able to judge if, 
God against the rest of the field is we're not necessarily talking about God and we and it's really tough to identify when you have a player at that level because you don't you don't know like Federer 04 to 07 you don't know how good he would have been against a tougher level of competition if you're looking at a runner in 1900 then we know how good he was I mean because it, you're competing against the clock can be, and, can, and, be, can be collapsed into one step right and the, and the clocks existed then too and they were pretty reliable not quite as reliable as they are now Correct. but um, but we don't know what would have how he would have been able to maximize his skills if he had modern nutrition coaching yeah. the uh, accumulated conventional wisdom of a hundred plus years that people have now so and that's the that's the thing with comparing labor or board like it, it, maybe taking only their performance on court and it like the the algorithm that I've used in baseball and tennis other people have used in in baseball is to take people who compare the field from one year to the next just one increment at a time take the players who are leaving versus the players who are 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 arriving and then look at the how people compete against them from one year to the next so if yeah. the field is getting stronger the people who come back in year two are going to have a slightly harder time because the new arrivals are better than the ones who are leaving. And there's a lot of noise in any one of those calculations, but if you have those for a hundred consecutive years, it evens out. And that's where you get the, that's the, that's the support for Babe Ruth is a mediocre major leaguer these days. And I did something for tennis magazine a few years ago that basically said the same thing for labor. It's like labor was great at the time, but if we, if we do this, if we follow this algorithm where it takes us, then yeah, Labor's a top fifty player, but probably not top twenty. Uh, this topic is so interesting to me that I forgot how we got here. <laughs> Djokovic and Borg on clay. <laughs> and how did yeah. we get there? That was part of the argument that Djokovic. I think that was Carl's argument that Djokovic is a yeah, more. Someone from we started. We were talking saying, about no, I wanted, I wanted to know winning the double career slam. That's how yeah, exactly. Why, uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, and this is a good practice what we're doing right now because charting this conversation is is good practice for uh, for charting keeping. No, I was thinking keeping track of my wife's family, who you're all going to meet later. <laughs> <laughs> it's equally confusing, but I wanted to. It, we're well over an hour. I, I, you did promise super says. I did promise super size and I, I am delivering. I believe, or you all are delivering. Uh, but let's try to keep it under an hour and a half, which means we have five minutes left. Here's an oddball question for you in considering the greatest of all time. We've only been talking singles. And Carl and I, in our 35 previous episodes, have rigorously kept to a schedule <laughs> where we put doubles on our agenda for the, the episode and then do one of two things. Either we don't get there, we don't talk about it, and then say at the end, we really wish we could have talked about it, or we jam it into the last five minutes. So since this is the Tennis Abstract podcast, it is time to talk about doubles. And Federer has, he's got the, the Olympic medal in doubles, right? Yeah. Um, he's Davis has Cup. Davis Cup, he has that. Djokovic has Labor Cup with Federer, a loss <laughs> there. Um, a bunch of Davis Cup losses in doubles. Yeah, and Nadal... Multiple Davis Cup. Did he play doubles in in those? Uh, must have, at least. I, no, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if Federer won his doubles with Stan in, at the Davis Cup and the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. And so Nadal doesn't have the, the hardware. I don't, at least, he doesn't have an Olympic doubles medal, right? No, didn't they win gold in, did, in 20... No, but I thought in 2016 they won Olympic gold doubles. I think you're right. Wow. Did Let's quickly check. <laughs> so, so he has that, and he, I mean, he hasn't played that much doubles. None of these guys have played very much doubles. But in my in, in my doubles Elo rating, 
Nadal is number five in active players right now. I mean, that's not exactly right because he plays virtually no doubles, so that's that rating is built on a number of years, some of them quite some time ago. But, I mean, that that's huge. I mean, number five against a field of mostly specialists who aren't yeah, even playing singles. So, yeah? Yeah, he does. Mark Lopez. So he's got some hardware, too. I mean, yeah. clearly of these three, Nadal is is the best doubles player. Uh, Carl, you're you're our resident doubles guy, both in this group of four and in our podcast of two, and many other circumstances, I'd imagine. Is this a factor at all? I'm tempted to say no, because none of you knew that he won <laughs> doubles. I mean, this is a really hardcore group of tennis fans. On the other hand, you're all hardcore Federer fans, so maybe you chose to ignore it because it sort of ties Federer's only edge in the Olympic achievement category against yeah. against Nadal. Uh, and I'm only interested in Jack Sock playing doubles, so that's, <laughs> that's just that's my failing. I mean, I think, you know, Davis Cup did just come up, and while I don't think Nadal's doubles prowess brought him those Davis Cup titles, that is an argument often made by Nadal partisans, and, and an interesting one, because Spain has a really strong team. Then again, Federer Vavrinka make for a really strong team, and they were only able to put it together, or chose to put it together once. Um, yeah, I just don't think doubles counts anymore. I really don't. I think if there's a separate question about like who are the best doubles players of the last 10 years, then we'd, we'd put Rafa in there as who knows if he played more. Yeah. He's a monster at the net. Do you think so? I mean, here's, here's my counter-argument. Is that, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing, but here's the counter-argument. We've talked about this a little bit with, with net strategy and just evaluating net points. That he only it, gets there when, he's, when the point is won. Exactly. This is a subjective assessment of his pure skills. Um, and there are, there are, so one of the things I do is I track players' cumulative stats through the first six rounds of tournaments. I've shared some of those stats with you. I pull them off tennis abstract and, and I have a spreadsheet which, which combines all of that. And there are times when, when Nadal is playing the same percentage of points at the net as Djokovic and Federer and just winning more of them, right? So that is one way to negate the argument that he's only getting the gimmies. Because if you're at the net 12% of the time, it's not perfect, I know, because, yeah. because maybe it's the case that because of the game that he plays 12% of the time, he gets a relatively easy lock or whatever. But, but you wouldn't think he'd have more opportunities he than Federer. Exactly. Yeah. I do think when he comes in, even when he's coming in a lot, he pushes guys back better than the other two do because of a topspin. So yeah. that just gives him more time to react at net. He is maybe the best on tour in singles. Well, other than, the, I guess, the guys who serve in volley probably. But he's one of the best, if not the best, at the stop volley because he's pushed them so far back. So incredible touch. Mm-hmm. In terms of the other kinds of things. And his, oh, and his overhead might be the best. In terms of the other kinds of volleys to hit, I I am less sure of his prowess. I think a lot of his double success is like Jack Sox because when he's at the baseline, that topspin ball is so hard to volley. Especially with the way that double specialists play because they focus so much on, on higher risk shots just above the net to negate the net players. So that's a really hard shot to hit if you're dealing with topspin up to your yeah, shoulder high or head high. Yeah, I mean it is it is a great what if. Yeah, Ado. Now for a moment I thought you wanted to bring the goat debate to doubles. <laughs> he, he so did. my answer was the Bryans, but I don't know if that's uh, out of topic. Yeah, that would that would keep us going for another hour and a half. I think. Yeah, um, yeah that it, it, 
it would be nice to live in a world where doubles was a factor in the GOAT debate. I would like to live in that world. And maybe the other civilization that's going to challenge us in the form of one tennis match, maybe that is it's the It's a world. doubles match. It's a, it's <laughs> a, or a triples or quadruples. Who knows how they play? Boy, imagine if there were communication difficulties and we sent John Isner out there and they brought a doubles team. <laughs> Even well, Atlanta probably wouldn't save him. There are now chess jam. that have four boards on them if you, if you look on these websites. Uh, and these like grandmasters go online and play. There's like you know a chess setting. It's oh like yeah, a, a big cross, right? An eight by eight, an eight, five eight by eights in a cross, and four four uh, uh, sets of chess uh, uh, pieces, and everybody's playing against everybody else. Mm. Wow! So imagine a quadruple tennis team someday on a like a court double the size. It's like tennis strategy, tennis battles, tennis wars. I think the first one of us who will be involved with that will definitely be Carl. Uh, yeah, I just made my court reservation. <laughs> <laughs> the court doesn't exist, but yeah, you've got the reservation, and you'll have to move into a building that has the jumbo tennis court. It's gonna it's gonna be expensive. Keep that in mind if if you're looking for a, a new position, you're gonna have to prioritize. So. This beach here looks nice, as you know. Oh yeah, and actually, the, the the hotel does have beach tennis and paddle tennis stuff, but I don't know if the weather's that great for it since we are in Denmark. Yeah. Uh, so I think James should be the coach. For- for the match? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Because it's got this alien vibe out <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, Men in Black. It's just uh, one of the resident aliens here. Hollywood, call us. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know this was going to turn into a script meeting, but <laughs> yeah, I, I think we have some real potential here. So let's wrap it up here. I think we, we, we've spent 90 minutes and, and uh, arrived back where we started. That Who the hell knows? Who the, who the greatest of all time is. We've got some votes for Federer here, but but as Edo said in the beginning, we've we've got a few more years to play out. So hopefully we've given you some uh, some ammunition against your neighborhood Federer, Djokovic, or uh, Nadal fan. Not so much ammunition against Suleiman in case you end up in a debate with him since... Well, you'll know what to expect. I think <laughs> you, you'll ha- you'll ha- be pre- you can prepare for the rants ahead of time. So thank you guys for for taking part of your Danish vacation to do this podcast with us. Um, Edo, yeah, thank you. It's been amazing. Yeah, and for those of you who who don't know, if you read Italian, Edo's your man. Um, at tennisabstract.com, just follow the links to your website, which is called Settese.it. Punto it. That's yeah. so much better than dot it. Yeah. <laughs> what is what is uh, the u- Italian uh, way to say it? What does the URL mean? Set to size is seven six. Yeah, that's the nice. course score. So you've got like three hundred articles translated, something like that. Three no three seventy five. Three seventy five. Yes, it's nuts. Yes, sixty percent of those are yours, which is extremely flattering. Yeah, I'm looking for for these others to. Write yeah, we, to, to yeah. Between charting and writing, me plus Jeff plus Ado have done a lot. Yeah, that's that pretty much sums it all up. <laughs> and Suleiman, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. I'm so happy I could be here for your wedding and for this yeah. uh, wonderful podcast. Absolutely. And Carl, as always, happy to be here for the podcast and I guess the wedding too. I guess I <laughs> guess order. the wedding. Yes, so thanks everyone for listening. Uh, We'll probably be back next week in some form or other, non-wedding related, and probably only two of us, which feels like it's going to be a letdown, but you know, we could talk about Arena Sabalenka again. (laughs) Sevastova beat Naomi Osaka in the semifinals today. I mean, that's worthy of a whole podcast itself. 
So, yeah, thanks everyone for joining me. Thanks for listening, and uh, check back soon for episode 37.